welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. I am Lord Jehovah, your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt. Exodus, chapter 20, verse 2, Aramaic Bible in plain English. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're so happy that you're able to join us today, and we pray that you are blessed as you pursue a closer fellowship with our Lord, Christ Jesus. Today on Anchored by Truth, we're going to continue the new series we began on our last episode. Today in the studio, we have R.D. Fierro, who is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., this new series that you have launched is on the Ten Commandments, which surely is one of the most familiar parts of the Bible. Even people who are not Christians have some degree of familiarity with the Ten Commandments. Why do you want to do a series on the best-known parts of the Bible? It seems that that would be a section for which not much explanation would be necessary. Well, I decided that we needed to do this series on the Ten Commandments precisely because the Ten Commandments are so familiar to most people. The Ten Commandments are familiar not only to Christians, but even to our broader culture. And I would say that most people are so aware of them, they're so familiar with them, that they almost will take them for granted. And that's true even if they place trust and confidence in the Bible and in the Ten Commandments. Of course, today there are a lot of people, especially in our culture and society, who will simply dismiss the Ten Commandments out of hand because in those people's minds, they would say that nothing that was written 3,500 years ago could possibly be relevant to our lives today. That, of course, is a silly or dangerous attitude Because the Ten Commandments contain prescriptions that are obviously very important to our daily lives, like, you shall not steal, or you shall not commit murder. I don't think very many people want to live in a society where those two commandments don't apply. No, they don't. But they would tell me that we don't need the Ten Commandments to tell us not to murder or steal because we have civil laws from our government that prohibit those activities. And it is true that we do have civil laws that prohibit murder and theft. But what most people never stop to think about is what is the basis for our civil law, or frankly, the basis for any laws at all. And just from the standpoint of human existence, the basis for law, that's a question that is pretty important. And while we don't think much about what provides the basis for our government today, The people who founded America certainly had no doubts about what they considered to be the foundation for all human government. You're thinking about the most famous of the documents that founded the United States, the Declaration of Independence. And of course, probably no part of the Declaration is better known than, quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, unquote. 
Yes, the founding fathers of our nation, when they began their reasoning about government, they went all the way back to the beginning. And not to the beginning of the settlements in America, but to the beginning of everything. And that's why the phrase, endowed by their creator, is so relevant and instructive. They could have just said, endowed by God, but they didn't. They specifically used the word creator. Yes, the overwhelming majority of the founders of the United States of America were devout Christians who understood that God was sovereign. And they understood that God's sovereignty derived from the fact that God had made everything. Now, God did not just create people, and that fact is pretty important when talking about government, but God created everything. The opening verse of the Bible tells us that, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if we don't understand that simple fact, it is impossible to build a coherent worldview. We see the echo of that very first verse of the Bible in the introduction that God makes to the Ten Commandments, and we heard that introduction in our opening scripture. I noticed that you selected the version of Exodus chapter 20 verse 2 from a version of the Bible we've never used before on Anchored by Truth. This version came from the Aramaic Bible in plain English. You obviously chose that for a reason. Indeed. Most versions or translations of the Bible, like the New International Version or the English Standard Bible, they translate that verse as, quote, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, close quote. But since we do Anchored by Truth as either a radio show or a podcast episode, we don't have any visuals to show people what that verse looks like in a printed version. Now, in the New International Version or the English Standard Bible, the word LORD in those quotes is actually printed in all capital letters. And that's a way in those versions of showing that the Hebrew word that is being translated into English is Yahweh. And Yahweh is the personal name for God. We learn that Yahweh is God's name from Exodus chapter 3, verse 14 during the famous encounter of Moses with God at the burning bush. Moses asked God what name he should give when the Hebrews in Egypt asked him who had sent him. God said to say, I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. The word for I am is Yahweh. By saying that his name was I am, God was telling Moses and us that God is self-existent. He possesses the power of existence unto and by himself. God is the only being that is self-existent. Human, animals, and even angels all derive their existence from him. No one and nothing but God is self-existent. So while many of us miss the big point of the name God gave to Moses, the Hebrews of Moses' day would not. Yahweh was such a sacred name among the ancient Jews that they wouldn't speak it. They often just said the name. The Greek version of Yahweh is Jehovah. Exactly. So that's why I used the Aramaic Bible in plain English for our opening scripture, because that translation makes it plain that before God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, he used the name for himself that made it very plain why he possessed the authority to issue commandments in the first place. God may command human beings, and God may command all creation for that matter, because God made human beings, and God made all creation. 
Again, we're going back to that simple basic fact. God gets to tell people and the universe how he wants them to behave because he made everything. And frankly, even Christians tend to gloss over the introductory statement when we read that part of the Bible. But we shouldn't. In that simple introduction to the commandments, God is revealing a great many things. The first of which is, quote, I have every right to issue the commands I'm giving you because I made you. And your very lives and existences are entirely dependent on me, unquote. That's not something we like to think about in our day and age, is it? No. In our day and age, we are so surrounded by evolutionary and uniformitarian ideas that even Christians may drift away from an inescapable bedrock fact that God, Yahweh Jehovah if you want, has complete authority over us and all creation because God made us and all creation. Now we understand from an earthly standpoint that the ability of a Lord to exercise control over others is limited only to the sphere in which that Lord possesses authority. I need to listen to and obey the orders of my boss, but I don't have to obey the boss of the business next door. State governors govern in their state, but the moment they leave their state, nobody in the neighboring state is subject to their authority. Even the grandest king or emperor who ever ruled in human history had a limited sphere of authority. No human being, ever, had authority over the whole earth. But God does have authority over the whole earth and every human being that has ever lived because God made the whole earth and every human being that has ever lived. God has control over creation. In the same way a painter has control over their painting or a sculpture may create the sculpture as they see fit. I see why you wanted to address this subject before we moved on to the substance of the first commandment. Quote, you shall have no gods before me, unquote. The first commandment is not just reasonable, but righteous because of the introduction that God made. God prohibited the worship of other gods besides himself because, frankly, there are no other gods that are remotely similar to Yahweh, to the great I Am. The God of the Bible is unique and distinct. He alone is infinite. He alone is omniscient. He alone is omnipotent. I mean, human language doesn't even have the ability, the words, to describe the perfections of the one true God. So, it is reasonable and righteous that we should never accord worship to any lesser person or being other than the God who made everything. Idolatry is wrong because it takes the respect which rightfully belongs only to the God of the Bible and then tries to give that to someone or something else. And even in our own experience, we know that ascribing credit or glory due one person to another is wrong. If a team wins their league championship and displays the trophy, that's right and fitting. But if another team came and stole the trophy and claimed that they should be celebrated because they had the trophy, none of us would say that is okay. There is even a prohibition in our laws to stop people from claiming credit for military service or decorations if they didn't earn them legitimately. We call that stolen valor. When a human being worships someone or something other than God of the Bible, it is the ultimate case of stolen valor. No one and nothing rightfully deserves the praise and worship that God deserves because no one and nothing has created everything ex nihilo. And when we say that God created ex nihilo, 
That means that God created the universe out of nothing. That means that God did not use any pre-existing matter or energy, and then he just shaped that pre-existing matter or energy into the creation we see about us. Creation ex nihilo means that God created everything that exists by the ineffable power that only he possesses. So, if we ever ascribe worship to any lesser thing or being, we are denying, or at least we're attempting to deny, a very simple truth. Nothing would exist or could exist apart from God. So, if we are going to give praise and thanks, we need to give that praise and thanks to the one who is actually responsible. I mean, this is such an important point. But, you know, too often when we begin reading that portion of the Bible, the Ten Commandments, we just kind of gloss right over this whole line of reasoning. Usually, when we think about the Ten Commandments, we think about them in terms of being rules or regulations that govern our behavior. We know that we are not to worship other gods, and I suspect that most Christians think that is a commandment they are obeying if they just go to a Christian church. But as we have been discussing, the force and effect of the first commandment goes beyond just saying that we participate in our worship service in the right kind of building. Yes, all true and acceptable worship must begin with the correct apprehension of God. We have to start out with a solid understanding of God as he reveals himself to us in the Bible because it is so, so easy for us as limited creatures to drift into worshiping a God of our own choosing or our own making. Especially in our day and time, we have a tendency to diminish God's holiness, transcendence, and righteousness when we think about Him. We, as people, are very uncomfortable by the way that God has expressed His holiness and righteousness in His commandments. And frankly, we are uncomfortable, especially in the, quote, democratic West, with the uncompromising nature of God's sovereignty. You know, we prize civil democracy and free choice, and we should when we come to think about other people having control over us. But that changes entirely when we start thinking about the being that created everything. We start to think that God somehow has an obligation to accommodate our ideas and concepts of how he should structure the world. Nothing could be more foolish or dangerous. You have often said that God is not a scared teenager. By that you mean that God is not sitting around on a sort of wispy cloud wishing desperately that we human beings will accept him, think well of him, and worship him. To the contrary, every single encounter any human being had with even the barest glimpse of God in the Bible shows the human was struck with awe and amazement with even the bit of God they could apprehend. The encounter described in Isaiah chapter 6 is a perfect example. Verses 1 through 5 say, quote, In the year that Isaiah the king died, I saw Lord Jehovah sitting on a throne, high and exalted, whose robe filled his temple, and seraphim were calling, Holy, 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 Lord Jehovah of hosts, for all of the earth is filled with his praises, unquote and the doorposts of the door moved, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe to me, for I am overcome with astonishment, because I am a man of defiled lips, and I will dwell among a people whose lips are defiled. And my eyes have seen the King, Lord Jehovah of hosts. This quote is also from the Aramaic Bible in plain English. 
Isaiah was a priest from a very important family in Hebrew society. And Isaiah was an honorable man, and he came from the highest ranks of Hebrew society. Yet Isaiah, this very distinguished, honorable, good man, he was so overcome with the recognition of his own sinfulness when he was confronted with the immediate presence of God's majesty that Isaiah pronounced woe on himself. You know, Isaiah had probably his whole life guarded his worship carefully. And Isaiah, I have no doubt, was as faithful to upholding the first commandment as any human being who has ever lived, apart from Jesus, of course, because Jesus was sinless. But Isaiah was devastated when he came into contact with the Lord. I mean, can you imagine how Isaiah would have felt if Isaiah had ever drifted into the worship of the false gods that predominated in the cultures and in the nations that surrounded Israel? Isaiah's experience brings the necessity of the first commandment as a commandment and to be the first commandment into very sharp focus. As people and as Christians, we routinely ask God for things we need. Healing, jobs, help for kids or grandkids, meeting financial needs, etc. And we should do that because 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 tells us to, quote, cast all your cares on God, for he takes care of you, unquote. And you spend some time in your book, Purposeful Prayers, thinking about how important it is for us to understand the relationship between God's nature and our needs. This quote from Purposeful Prayers, quote, Many people spend too little time considering the nature of the object of their prayers. This is unfortunate, because even the most beautiful prayer prayed by the sincerest person to an unworthy object would be a futile prayer. An inanimate or non-existent object cannot hear a prayer, much less respond to it. The Bible, particularly the Old Testament, is filled with admonitions about the futility of praying to inanimate objects that have neither eyes to see, ears to hear, nor the power to move. But beyond the futility of praying to an unworthy object is a more serious problem. Because prayer is communion with God, and therefore part of worship, it would be an act of idolatry to direct prayer to an unworthy object. The first of the Ten Commandments is number one for a reason. Yes. God put the commandment not to worship anything or anyone other than him first, because to do so would not only be offensive to God, but it would also be detrimental to us. God alone is sovereign, and our observations about the universe tell us this. I mean, the alternative to God having created the universe is that everything and everybody came from nobody and nothing. The alternative to God creating mankind is that some random atoms collided one day to produce some molecules, and that began a process that generated a being with 30 trillion cells, and each one of those cells contains an information storage system more sophisticated than any information storage system ever created by that 30 trillion cell being. In other words, the system that created the being reflects more intelligence than the being it created possesses. But the system doing the creation is itself unintelligent. Hmm, sounds like there's a problem here. Indeed. And the first commandment encapsulates all of these thoughts, even though it doesn't go to the point of elaborating on them. You know, from the standpoint of information science, 
The first commandment is the information scientist's dream. I mean, it conveys hundreds of instructions that will benefit its intended recipient in just about eight or nine English words, depending on the translation or version we're talking about. In doing so, the first commandment gives evidence that it was framed by an omniscient mind. I mean, anyone who knows much about the civil laws that are common in our society or in the West today knows that we will spend hundreds and sometimes thousands and tens of thousands of words conveying even simple concepts. The U.S. states have hundreds of pages that essentially cover nothing more than ideas like, you shall not steal. You're giving me a headache, but we take the point. But of course, there were other legal codes in Moses' day that didn't exhibit the bureaucratic complexity of the legal codes of our day. For instance, the Mosaic Law has often been compared to the law collection of Hammurabi, an Ammonite Babylonian king who ruled between Abraham and Moses. Yes, they have been. And frankly, that helps confirm the historicity of the Ten Commandments because it shows us that it was set in a format familiar to the people of that time. But there are significant differences between the Mosaic Law and those of Hammurabi. The laws of Hammurabi address at least nine different gods. Moses worships only one. In the Hammurabic Code, the reputation and wisdom of Hammurabi is in focus, whereas Moses received no credit for the laws of God. Hammurabi is the author of his laws, but Moses received those laws as a revelation from God. And the laws of Hammurabi have no reference to the moral qualities of the gods, but the Mosaic laws are very clearly a reflection of the holiness of God. There are clear rules for punishment in the crimes that are specified in the laws of Hammurabi, but there's no provision for forgiveness because the gods of Hammurabi have no interest in morality. But in the Mosaic Law, sin is primarily an affront to the character of God. But repentance and sacrifices for forgiveness and reconciliation, those are an inseparable part of the Mosaic Law. And the laws revealed through Moses clearly have an Egyptian background, especially with the first commandment. The Egyptians worshipped over 2,000 gods. So, it makes sense that God told Moses that the Israelites were to have no other gods before me. But the fact that there are some similarities with other legal codes of the time, the Ten Commandments were clearly distinct from the surrounding cultures, means that the most reasonable conclusion is that the laws and religion of Israel were uniquely revealed to Moses by God and reflect his plan for salvation that began in the garden immediately after the fall of Adam and Eve. The nature and structure of the Ten Commandments is consistent with the state of human history and government at the time Moses received them from God, which was about 1,500 years before Jesus was born. But the distinctiveness of the Ten Commandments also reveals that they were given to a people that was in the process of transition. You know, when the Hebrews went down into Egypt to escape the famine in Palestine, there was only about 80 of them. But when the Hebrews left Egypt, they had grown into a nation of approximately 2 million people. Well, that was a major change to say the least. So at the time the Hebrews were leaving Egypt, it was time for them to receive a formal legal code to govern this new national society with its new attributes. Next week, we're going to move on to the second commandment, and we're going to see that the second commandment makes as much sense to be number two as it made for the first commandment to be number one. 
And we are also going to see that the second commandment makes sense culturally, morally, and historically. And as we said last week, the reason that God gave the Ten Commandments to us was to improve our lives. It's not because God was just sitting on a cloud one day and decided it was time to issue regulations to his people. This sounds like a great time for a prayer. So today, let's listen to a prayer for the celebration of Easter, the day our Lord rose from the grave, proving the Father's complete satisfaction with the sacrifice that makes our salvation possible. A Prayer for Easter Celebration Royal and Just Father, You are the author of grace. You are the one who saw man's dilemma before the tempter first came and who pronounced salvation's plan as soon as the fall was named. You are the God of perfect justice and unmerited mercy. You are the Father of our risen Lord. Today, O God, we celebrate that rising. The angels had announced his birth and been forced to stand by as weak and sinful men stole his life. Surely it was right and just for them to be the first to see that he had indeed conquered death. Because the angels were the first to see redemption come full circle, they were then fully equipped to report the good news to those who loved Christ most and grieved so much. The women and the disciples then were the first of Adam's race to behold the circle's completion. In so doing, they formed the pattern for all who would follow. Yet today, every child of yours must grieve for their own sin and must realize that justly the wages of sin is death. Today, we celebrate not just the day of Christ's rising, but the entirety of a plan that keeps us in awe as we contemplate its scope and purpose. The irrefutable evidence that we are saved is that our Savior is risen and today reigns at your right hand. We cannot magnify Christ too much, but as we have breath and life, we will continue to praise Him and glorify you. Christ taught us to pray and we count it the greatest of blessings that we can do so in His glorious name. Amen. Amen. Is the Bible important in your life? Supporting Anchored by Truth with a contribution is an easy way to put your faith into action. The opportunity to help is available at crystalseabooks.com. How wonderful would it be for Jesus to commend us because we made His Word a priority in our lives and giving. We are grateful for your support and partnership. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage friends to tune in also, or to listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where We're not perfect, but our boss is. And for those of you who need that website one more time, that's crystalcbooks.com. Crystal, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-C-S-E-A, and books, B-O-O-K-S, dot com. Thank you for your support.
Are you hungry for truth? Most people are today. Between changing social standards, cultural chaos, and denominational deviance, confusion is sweeping over our community like a tsunami. Will we be swept away, or will we be anchored by truth? At Crystal Sea, our passion is the Bible. The Bible came from the mind of God. The words of God are powerful in truth and love. God will give us peace and strength as we honor His Word. At Crystal Sea Books, we believe the Bible can be a dynamic part of adventure stories, lyrical rhythms, and even humor, as well as inspire our prayers and meditations. That's why Crystal Sea Books is so pleased to offer an all-ages adventure story. Doors of Destiny, a choice orb tale. Many readers have compared the adventure and engagement of Doors of Destiny to the timeless treasures of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And getting a copy of Doors of Destiny couldn't be easier. Just go to crystalseabooks.com and use the link. That's Crystal Sea Books, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-C-S-E-A, Books, B-O-O-K-S, dot com. In Doors of Destiny, the Bible's timeless wisdom is captured in an amazing adventure story that is suitable for all ages. Build your faith as you travel highways and byways that extend beyond the veil of eternity. Get your own copy of Doors of Destiny today. At Crystal Sea Books, we're not perfect, but our boss is.